Your word tells us to, like newborn babies, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into salvation. Father, I pray that this morning as we open your word together that you would cultivate in us by your Holy Spirit a great hunger to know you and to know you from your word which is your communication to us about who you are and what you are like and what you require of us and what you have done for us uh, that in Christ you have done everything necessary to deal with our sin, to bring us into relationship with you, and to make us your children, even though we are rebels and sinners against you. Father, I pray we would hunger for your word and long to take it in, and that this morning we would, we would uh, chew on it and eat it, and digest it, and grow up into our salvation because of it. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, um, as we get into Romans chapter 6 again, I want you to imagine with me for a minute what it would be like to be a slave. What it would be like to be a slave. Uh... If you're a slave, you live where the person who owns you tells you that you're going to live. Uh, You eat what they provide. You wear what clothing they give you, if they give you any. If you displease your master in some way, they can beat you, they can brand you, they can abuse you, they they can curse you, they can assault you, they can even kill you without any consequence whatsoever. Why? Because you're a slave. You're their property. They own you. And you have to do whatever they say. And it is one of the most miserable ways to live that humans in their sinfulness have ever devised. The enslaving of other people. And history shows that liberated slaves usually respond when they get their freedom. They usually respond with great joy and they very quickly set off to make a new life as free men and free women. But one of the things that is really strange is that sometimes people who have been enslaved for a long, long time actually try to go back to it. They actually seek to go back to that. You remember that as virtually as soon as the nation of Israel was across the Red Sea... They, they, go, they go through the ten plagues in Egypt and they see God's hand of deliverance and they see God do all these miraculous things. And then they cross the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is drowned behind them. The superpower of the ancient world is defeated by the hand of God without firing a shot. And they get to the other side of the, of the Red Sea and they're walking around in the desert for a couple days and they start thinking, some of them, you know, what would really make my life better is to go back to Egypt. 
And they've forgotten all about the taskmaster's lash. And they've forgotten all about the fact that Pharaoh gave a command that all of their boy babies should be thrown into the Nile to the crocs. They've forgotten all about that. And instead, what they're doing is waxing poetic about pots of meat and leeks and garlics and onions. And some of them actually start organizing a group to get together and point themselves a leader to go back to Egypt, back to the land of slavery. And as you read the story, you go, that is absolutely crazy. Why would you voluntarily go back to the taskmaster? Why would you voluntarily go back to the people who want you dead? And it is because there's something in us that if we have been abused for a long period of time, some of us seek it out because we get some sort of strange comfort from the thing that enslaved us or from the person who enslaved us, even when we know it will destroy us. And I bring all this up because Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us in the verses we're going to look at, look at this morning that we used to be slaves to sin, but that Christ's death and resurrection has set us free from from sin's mastery over us. And we are no longer its slaves. And this text also tells us that since we are free, we are not to go back into slavery to sin anymore. That just as the people of Israel were told, don't you go back to Egypt. We're told, don't go back into slavery to sin. We're not to go back under its rule and domination. And he also tells us in this passage we're going to look at how to get free of sin's rule in our hearts so that we stop wanting to go back to slavery. And we need to know and experience these things so that we can live free as God intended when he sent Christ to Calvary, to die in our place for our sin. So I want to look with you at Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 5, and see how Christ's death killed our slavery to sin for us. So if you've got your Bible there, Romans chapter 6, beginning verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Now, uh, just by way of background here, uh, as we get into this passage, one of the things you need to know about Paul in all of his letters, this is always true, that our duties always flow and are the result of our doctrine. Uh, to say that another way, what God wants us to do is a result of what is true. 
What God wants us to do is a result of what is true. And so Paul, in many of his letters, they outline this way. The first half of the book of Ephesians, as an example, is all about what is true and what God has done for us and how he has provided us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 is all about Paul explaining what Christ has done for us. And then chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6 are all about what we're supposed to do in response to that. And it's about living life by the, filled with the Holy Spirit and putting off sin, putting on Christ, and living as, uh, filled with the Spirit and having a good marriage and a good home and, uh, and experiencing an overcoming of spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms and spiritual warfare and all that kind of thing. All that results uh, in our lives from what Christ has done for us. Now here in Romans, what Paul has done for the last five and a half chapters is to tell us about how the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile, who both need salvation. Because they are both sinners who are separated from God. And he spent five and a half chapters telling us that not only is that true, but what Christ has done for us as a result of that, that what the gospel is and how it works for us to bring about our salvation from sin and death. And it's, it's only after he's explained all of that that here in this chapter he's going to give us the very first command that we get in the whole book. We get it in chapter, in chapter 6, verse 11. The very first command in the entire book of Romans is six, is five and a half chapters in. Chapter 6, verse 11 is the very first imperative verb you get. And it's because what we are to do follows from what is true. We first need to understand what is true, what God has done through Christ on our behalf, and then we have responsibilities that flow from that. Uh, and if you remember last week, you'll remember that I spent a lot of time explaining what Paul means in verses 3 and 4 of this chapter about how we have been baptized into Christ's death. And I told you that what it means is that we, by our faith in Christ, have been united with Jesus in such a way that whatever happened to Jesus also happened to us. That's what being baptized into Christ means. So when he died for our sins, uh, we also died to sin right along with him. And here in verse 5, he's going to give us another word picture to help make our union with Christ a little more clear to us. And when Paul uses the word united, look at it. It says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united. What he's, the word that's used there is a, is a, a unique uh, word in Greek, um, and it, it's used most commonly in ancient Greek uh, to talk about grafting. When you take a, take a, a stick off of a, one apple tree, let's say, you can cut a new apple tree and stick that in, and if you do it right, you can have that tree grow a new variety of apples. And, and what happens is, is that as you insert that graft, the 
the host tree that you stuck it into actually feeds and nourishes and is united with and grows together to connect to that new branch. It's weird how that works. But what, um, what Paul is saying that we, in a sense, are like branches that have been grafted into Christ. And just as when you graft something onto a tree... The tree nourishes it and gives it life and becomes one with it, so we have become one with Christ. That we are fused into Him, and He gives us life and nourishes us. And, so, and we are connected to Him in such a way that there's no separating it. And, and so whatever happens to Jesus is also something that happens to us. So just as we are united by faith to Him in His death in our place, or our sins, so also now that He has been raised from the dead, we will also share in a resurrection like His. How is that possible? Well, Paul explains in verses 6 through 8. He says, in verse 6, he tells us, that our old self, or your Bible uh, may read your old man, Okay, um, by the way, I just, just have to tell you, okay, um, uh, when it says your old man, I know this is Mother's Day, they're not talking about your dad there, okay? Your dad <laughs> is not who's in view, right? Um, your old man is your old self, the person, in other words, that you used to be before you met Jesus is your old man, Okay, your old self um, says that your old self, your old man was crucified when Jesus died in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And here's what that means. Your body is tempted by and affected by and drawn to sin in every part from your mouth to your mind, from your, uh, from your hair follicles down to your chromosomes, down to your DNA, every part of you is affected by sin. And if you and I are going to be freed from sin, then we're going to have to have a complete and total transformation. And the old us that very much includes our bodies is going to have to die. And praise God, that is precisely what happened. When we talk sometimes about how our sins were laid on Jesus at the cross, and we talk that way, and you know, as if they were a burden that were put on His shoulders. And that's good, and that's true language. But the truth is deeper than that. And it's also true that the entirety of everything that makes us sinners was also taken on by Jesus in His death so that all of our old nature, including its effect on our bodies, is put to death in His death on the cross. And the effect of that is that when we, we are set free completely from our slavery to sin, and that Christ's death killed our slavery. 
And the point, the point of this is that, is that we are no longer slaves to our sin. We don't have to do what it says. You know, when a slave dies, his master can't give him orders anymore, right? I mean, you can try, right? You can walk out there and be like, hey, do what I tell you, right? But it's not going to do any good. Why not? Because the guy is dead, right? And, and so he does not have to obey anymore. Why not? Because he's dead, and he can't, and he doesn't have to. And, and dead men do not do anything. Now, I've done a lot of funerals. I've never yet seen any of the bodies get up and do anything, ever, right? They can't. Why not? Because they're dead. Dead men do not do anything. And what Paul is telling us in verse 7 when he says, the one who has died has been set free, what he's, that's what he's telling us. Is that the greatest blessing of your life is that you and I are in a sense already dead. That we are already dead. That when we trusted in Jesus Christ, that the old us died and Christ came in and gave us new life. And we don't have to listen to our old master anymore because we are already dead to him. No matter what he says, no matter what sin says to us, you know what we can do? We can go to that and do what exactly what the Lord tells us to do. Because sin is not our master anymore. Why not? Because when Christ died, so did we. And dead men don't have to listen to their old, old master anymore. And we're already dead as far as sin is concerned. And we have been raised to new life by our new master, the Lord Jesus. And he has killed our slavery to sin with his death for us. But there's even more that's here. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Now if we have died, now if we have died with Christ, we also believe, we believe that we will also live with him. Now there are several ways. This is just a feature of, of the Greek language that our English Bibles are translated from in the, New Test, in the New Testament. There are several different ways to say if. Uh, and the way that he's saying it here is not conditional, even though it says if. What it means is something like since or because. And so you could just as easily translate it this way. Now, since you have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. In other words, this he's talking about something that, not that might be true, but something that is true. Paul knows that we have died with Christ if we're believers in Christ. And because that is true, then it is also true that the resurrection will one day be ours too. How do we know? Because we are united with Christ. 
Because we are united with Christ. We're grafted into Him. And we share, therefore, in every part of His life. His life flows through us and in us. And so, since He was raised from the dead, we also will one day be raised from the dead as well. We don't simply, in other words, believe in the resurrection because the Bible tells us it's coming, although that's a perfectly sufficient reason to believe in the resurrection, that the Bible tells you it's going to happen. But we also, based on this passage, can have full confidence that our resurrection is coming because we are so united with Jesus that it has to happen. It has to happen because it's already happened to him. And if we're united with him, it has to happen to us too. It's very much like, like saying, um, you know, well, um, you know, tonight I'm going to put my head to sleep. And in the morning I'm going to wake my head up, right? Well, that, that's ridiculous, Right? Because when you go to sleep, what happens? Your whole body goes to sleep, right? And when you wake up, your whole body wakes up. Uh, you don't get to like put certain parts to sleep and have the rest of it stay awake under normal circumstances, right? Uh, whatever happens to your head also happens to your body. And what has happened to our head, Jesus Christ, is that he has been raised from the dead. So guess what? We who are in his body are also going to be raised from the dead. That just as he went into the ground and was raised from the dead, so we will one day go into the ground and be raised from the dead. It has to happen. In the same way that whatever happens to your physical head also happens to the rest of you. It has to happen that we will be raised from the dead because we are united with Christ we are so connected to Him that there is simply no way, biblically speaking, that we cannot be raised from the dead. We have to be resurrected because Jesus, who is our head, has already been. Now, so here's what the point of those verses is, that God killed our slavery to sin through Christ's death for us. And he did so, so that we can live freely for him. I want, to, I want you to look at verses 9 through 11 here now with me. Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, listen to me right here and follow the logic of verse 9. You've got you to pay attention to what Paul is telling us. He's saying Jesus cannot die again. He cannot die again. Why not? Because death is the penalty of and the result of sin. It is sinners who die. 
And Jesus had no sin of his own. So the only way that he could die in the first place was to have our sins so united with him that they would result in his death. The only way that, could ha- that Jesus could die for us was that our sins would be so united with him that he could die. But after God's judgment on our sin happened, after it was over, when, when, when Jesus died, God lays all of our sins on Jesus and unites them with him. Takes them away from us, unites them with Jesus, so that, so that Jesus dies as if our sins were his. To enable him to experience the death that we deserve that he did not. But after God's judgment was over and sin's price was paid, then Jesus could not remain dead. He was resurrected because death no longer has power over a sinless man. And so Jesus was allowed to die only because our sins were connected to him. But once they no longer were, because God's judgment was done, Jesus could not stay dead. And since he is still sinless, he cannot die again. And the reason that he can't is because there is no more sin left for which Jesus could possibly die. Not one drop of our sin is left for Jesus to die for. And death only happens to sinners. And since he is not a sinner, he cannot die. And since there's no more sin left, he couldn't even theoretically die again for sin. Death cannot rule in the absence of sin, and so Jesus is resurrected to life. And verse 10 clarifies this a little bit better. It says, it tells us that Jesus died to sin once for all. You need to underline that phrase in your Bible if you haven't. Jesus died to sin once for all. It means that all of our sins, all of our sins, were laid on Jesus at the cross. And there is no need for ongoing sacrifices to deal with our sins. And it also means that all, all, every bit, all of the consequences of our sin, including most especially the physical death that results in eternal death in hell that we all deserve, was also completely and totally paid and and secured for us at the cross and there is no need for anything else it is once for all and this is where by the way our roman catholic friends are simply wrong their catechism will teach you that the Mass, when you go to Mass and you participate in communion, when you take the, the, the host and the grape juice from the priest, that what is happening there is what they call an unbloody sacrifice by which Jesus is sacrificed again for your sins 
that you've committed since the last time you participated in the sacrament. And that is not true. It is once for all. For all of our sin, for all of the consequences of sin that could possibly be ours, every last bit of our sin and its effects on us has been paid for one time in one sacrifice for all people, for all sin, forever at the cross. And there is not a need for Jesus to continue to offer sacrifice for us. Now, does he advocate for us in heaven? Yes, indeed. But he advocates for us in heaven on the basis of the fact that our sin was covered at Calvary. And there is not a need for any more of it. It's done. That sin was paid. Well, when was it paid? At the cross. So that when the accuser comes before God and says, do you see what that person you call your child has just done? God can say, yes, I see. I see, Satan, what he just did, what she just said, what he just thought, what she just gossiped about. I saw it. But guess what? They're mine. And I made them mine when I paid for them with my blood on the cross. So get out of here. It is once for all done, paid for, accounted for, paid in full, paid in full. And we are free from sin and death, both now and forevermore. There is none left over that needs to be accounted for. And don't miss the second half of verse 10 either. It says, the life he lives, he lives to God. And the point here is that Jesus is our example of how to live. He didn't simply die for us. He also lives for us, the perfect example of obedience to the Father, just like we are supposed to. And Paul makes that very clear in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Uh, again, here's the first imperative in the whole book so far. He says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this is a command that is based on everything Paul has just spent five and a half chapters explaining about the gospel. that Jesus died and rose to put the death we deserve for our sins to death and to give us new life through his resurrection and that these things all come to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then after having explained that for five and a half chapters, he gives us this whopper of a command So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. I want you to look at the first part of that with me. First three words. So you also. In other words, you want to interpret that a little bit. It means just like Jesus. 
so you also is a reference back to the previous verse talking about the life that Jesus lives before God since his resurrection, that he lives to God. So you also, in other words, just like Jesus, live your life to God. That he who died to give you new life expects you to live a new life like his. Because the life that you have is his life being lived in you like the life of the apple tree giving life to the graft. You are connected to Jesus and his life is operating in you and in me. And so the life that we live, we live his life in our life. And we live devoted to the Lord. That means that we live our lives dedicated to and devoted to and centered around and finding our purpose in living directed toward God. That we no longer live for ourselves. That we don't ask ourselves, and the most important question uh, about our lives day to day is not, what do I want to do today? What do I want out of life? What do I want to buy next? What do I want my spouse to do for me? What do I want my children to do for me? What, is, what, is my, what do I want my job to be so that it benefits me? We are no longer the most important person in our lives. We are dethroned. And we now live our life to God. And we ask ourselves, what would God have me do today? What would He have me think today? What would He have me speak today? How would He have me conduct myself at my job, with my spouse, in my home, with my children? Uh, how would He have me drive down the highway Talked about that at one of our classes the other night with a group of people. We talked about road rage and how um, it is so difficult to box that in and tamp that down, right? And the reason is, is that we believe that we are the most important person on the road, right? We are. And if everyone else would just bow before the sovereign who has now appeared, then we would do fine, right? Right? But instead of that, we live our lives to God. So you also, like Jesus does. And then look at the rest of it. If you're confused on how to do that, uh, Paul explains a little bit more in verse 11. Must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the word consider, he's not asking you to think about it, not asking you to reflect on it. He's not asking you to memorize it, right? A lot of us as Christians, we get confused and we think that memorizing Scripture equals obeying Scripture and knowing Scripture equals uh, actually doing it, right? James talks about that, something about that. He says, don't simply listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says, right? So when he says consider, he doesn't simply mean, hmm, think about that a bit. No. 
He means to recognize and regard yourselves as someone who is dead to sin. To have an awareness of the new status that you in fact have. Right? Now, let me just tell you something. I don't play the lottery, but I understand that there are people who do. And, and let's suppose that you did play the lottery, and you hit the Powerball jackpot, and you all of a sudden got $300 million on this little ticket, right? Now, let me ask you something. Would anything happen to you that was immediately obvious on the outside? I mean, apart from smiling really big for like the rest of the year, right? Um, There wouldn't be necessarily anything obvious that you could see that had changed, right? You're still the same guy who walked into that gas station uh, five minutes ago, but now you're walking out $300 million richer, right? But after you kind of tried to pinch yourself and figure out if you were dreaming or not, whether this was reality, after you realized that it was in fact reality, there'd be some things you'd start doing, right? Like you might go down and see your new best friends at uh, Peoria Land Rover and Jaguar, right? Um, And you would not worry about whether the check was going to clear, right? Uh, No, we're not financing that. We're just buying it. I'll bring it in in a suitcase in $100 bills, right? Um, uh, You you might, if you were me, uh, get yourself on the next flight over to London for a Holland & Holland best-grade side-by-side shotgun, right? Custom-fitted to your measurements, right? You would act differently because you recognize, though no one else can see, that you have a new thing that has happened to you that has transformed your life, right? And when he says, consider yourselves dead to sin, that's the kind of transformation that he has in mind. That you need to live in light of and recognizing the reality that you are in fact dead to sin, but alive to God. That sin does not have to be your master anymore. And it cannot give you orders that you have to obey. You can choose to obey. In chapter 7, we'll talk about that. But you don't have to obey. I mean, how many of you, if you, hit, if you had 300 million bucks, as an example, would go into your job on Monday morning? I mean, maybe you would. Maybe you'd walk in just to say, hey, by the way, it's been fun and it's been real, but it has not been real fun. I'll see you. Right? Right? You might tell your old boss that, okay? And then you would walk out the door and he would say, You can't quit. And I said, Sorry, I already did. Right? Your old master cannot give you any more orders. Why not? Because you got a new one yourself, right? (laughs) Um, You fired the old guy, right? And what Jesus has done for you is he has fired your old man. He has fired the person you used to be. In fact, he has put him to death for you. 
so that he does, you do not have to listen to him anymore. You do not have to listen to him anymore. And you do not have to do what your sin nature tells you you ought to do. Because you have a new source of life living inside of you. You have a new ability to follow Jesus and a calling, in fact, to follow Jesus. And the first thing that you need to do in order to do that is to recognize the fact that that has happened to you and then to live in light of it. Amen? Amen. All right. So, you want to know what God's will is for your life? People ask me that question sometimes. Pastor, I want to know what God's will is for my life. I tell them, well, I tell you what, I don't know what God's will is for your life, but I don't know what God's will is. Go through your Bible and underline every command and you'll find it. Right? And here's a place where God tells you what his will for your life is. Verse 11, so you also must, in other words, not optional, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, that you live free from sin, your master who is dead, and alive to God, your master who lives eternally and who gave eternal life to you and to me. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that out of your abundant goodness, grace, mercy, and love, you lavished on us.